Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. So hey y'all, as Lashonda mentioned earlier, I'm Baranda Fermin. I'm currently serving as the interim pastor and interim executive director here at Life in Deep Ellum. Um, before we get started into our sermon, we are in a series called Progressive Dinner. And in that series, we're walking through the seven signs or the seven revelations um, of Christ in the earth and what that meant. Um, A lot of times that involved food, especially the story today, Um, and leading up to Holy Week and the revelation of Christ as Messiah on the cross and the Last Supper. So to commemorate that, we have sacrificed ourselves and gone all around Deep Elam. And taken pictures at tables, sat at those tables, and talked to people at those tables. I mean, God really asks us to do super, super hard things. (laughs) And we would like for you this week to guess which table is featured this week. And if you guess correctly, you get this gift card to participate in some of that good eating. So... I think we have, do we have the picture of the table? Who was, it was over here. Chad. It's St. Pete's Dance in Marlin, where you get a shark in your drink, even if it's only water. (laughs) So we got, um. Oh, St. Pete's is a lot of our favorite places. Um, And so we didn't want to start with that one because that one would be super (laughs) easy. But I'm glad that Chad got it. And so last week, um, as we closed off a very hard week, we were buoyed by the fact that the babies got dedicated. We were in the print practice center and there were babies being dedicated, and all of us very weary adult selves were asking ourselves the question, are you ready for a miracle? And most of us nodded and voiced audible agreement that we were indeed ready for a miracle. Um, And even as we sat within the comfort and bliss of our own community, um, we knew that there were miracles that were needed, not just out there, but in our own lives. And so it's a good thing that we agreed that we are (laughs) in need of a miracle because as we began our Lenten observation this past week with Ash Wednesday service, which was also in the prayer and practice center, um, we are assured by the onset of our observance of Lent that Christ is with us. So one week at a time during Advent, we were assured that Christ was with us. We recognize that assurance this week and our humble acceptance of the love and the faith and the joy and the peace of Christ. We've been celebrating that since Epiphany. Remember when we lit these candles and did those things? And so since the birth of Jesus, since our celebration of the birth of Jesus, we have known through the traditional stories of the bright star that guided us to the knowledge and then through the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist and the descending of the doves from the sky, 
this knowledge, this knowing, these signs that Christ was with us, that the Messiah existed in this broken and struggling world. We've sat with that since the epiphany. And so as we've talked in this particular series, Progressive Dinner, about the Gospel of John, we've talked about how it's constructed around these particular signs, these seven signs, and how that differs in the, from the stories that are told in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Luke, Matthew, which we tend to focus on during Advent and the Epiphany. And there's a reason for that. It's not just that, you know, we want to focus on a different disciple. We'd like to talk about a different friend. But it's that the stories are actually told differently. Whereas the synoptic gospels really focus on mystery and inspiration, there's a star in the sky. Right? There's a birth in a strange place. John's Gospels, you know, it brings it really down to earth for us. It's practical. And so John stands out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The distinction isn't necessarily about facts, but more about the reference of the tone that John takes. And so... John's gospel is distinctively contemplative and revelatory. Whereas Matthew, you know, he's in the details and Mark, the accountant, he's, you know, um, Matthew as the accountant and Mark as the secretary and Luke as the discriminating physician. Like you get these details and you get this outline and it goes boom, 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 boom. And these are the things that happen and these are the things. It's very structural. It really shows the impact that Christ's presence has on big things like culture and politics. But John is our buddy. He's a weirdo, a geek, a nerd that seems to know all of these like sidebar stories and like that there were people hanging out of the temple while the dude was being dropped from the temple. Like there's just all these extra details because John is in community. John would be at St. Pete's, or maybe in Mocha. And so, if you need a Bible, as we hang out with John a little bit, we will be in the sixth chapter, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 15, and so if you have your device, or if you need a printed Bible, Greg's standing, if you would prefer a printed version This week, we're going to sit with Jesus in our midst, and we will find ourselves in John chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 1. So, it reads, Sometime after this, so the last miracle when Jesus healed the paralytic man, right? Sometime after this, Jesus crossed through the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him through, um, though they saw the, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. 
When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy the bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test Philip, for he already knew and had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So in this story, we find Jesus in Galilee around the time of Passover. This is the revelation of the fourth sign. John 6 actually contains two signs that begin with the multiplication of loaves. So as we continue, we'll find it again. We might find it familiar to how the synoptic tradition talks about feeding with fishes and loaves. Yet John's is distinctly different in this way. The main disciples are Philip and Andrew. The loaves are barley loaves eaten by the very poor. And Jesus himself is both host and giver, distributing the food himself. The full Jonian text does not, and the meaning intended does not become apparent until the ensuing dialogue between Jesus and the crowd, which is an extended commentary on the meaning of what the feeding is. So, In the first verse, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up a mountainside and sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So I have a question. We know that a revelation is coming in this story. And so are you waiting for the right time for your miracle? Is that how miracles work? Do you believe it has to be a certain time in your life of the year that big things happen? Do you believe that there are certain things you have to do first in order to receive or deserve a miracle? that your problem isn't big enough or that you aren't worthy enough? This question is another way of exploring some of the realities of the revelations from last week's sermon. We are now equally deserving and can expect the power of Jesus to show up in our lives just as much as anyone else. 
the paralytic man didn't actually have to do anything. And he actually was kind of maybe a little ungrateful afterward. He stayed in the same place. He did not run and leap for joy. He didn't go do any exceptional things. He just stayed in the same place. And so if we are now equally deserving and can expect the power of Jesus to show up in our lives just as much as anyone else, that we don't merely have to be in the synagogues and temples asking questions of, of rabbis because Christ is with us. As Jesus sat with the crowd sprawled across the grassy hill, it begins where we left off in last week's story in John 5. It builds upon the revelation, we say, in the story of Jesus being involved in the paralytic man's healing. See, Jesus is claiming and sharing the same divine exemption as God by healing the paralytic man on the Sabbath in that story. The act of healing, the work of the miracle done by the paralytic man in connection with Jesus brings us humanity and the creation into the divine equation. So we need the divine and we need the human. Therefore, the equation of life, abundance, grace, alongside God, the creator, Yahweh, and God, the incarnate Jesus, is action. The miracle demonstrated in chapter five is a change in our relationship with the divine. It changes the whole system of power. But John questions us in ways with this story that make us ask, do we live, do we actually live in that power? Because where we leave off with the paralytic man is he just sits there with it. Like, why do your legs work now if you were just going to sit there? And so do we act as if this power exists within us or do we remain sitting in the same place we were before the miracle? In order to know if those following Jesus believed in their ability to receive miracles and participate fully in what Jesus was revealing during his ministry, Jesus asks a question that he already knows the answer to. We see this in verse five. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. And so the example of Jesus says, will you ask anyway? We know it takes more than just money to solve the problem of homelessness, to be gracious and kind to our houseless neighbors. But will we invite you anyway? What will you ask knowing that the answer is or should already be yes? What will you ask knowing that the presence and power of God is within all of us? If Christ is with us, as we've celebrated for weeks, sitting in the shadows of a crowd with Jesus, are you in your own head? You know what I'm talking about. 
when you're sitting right next to the person that you need to ask the thing of, whether it's to help you move the tables, which I'm always asking people to do, help you box the sandwiches, maybe help you put a down payment on a tank of gas. You know the person sitting next to you can do what you need. And you're in your head and you know they'll say yes and you know they can do it. And you keep coming up with reasons to not ask right now. How many of you have ever done that? Sitting in the shadows of the crowd with Jesus turning the questions over and over in your head, thinking of reasons you shouldn't ask or couldn't or it wouldn't work or are you present with your doubts and your speculations or are you present with Christ? Philip, though he'd followed Jesus through Jerusalem, he'd seen what he'd done in Galilee, Bethesda, Capernaum, and yes, in Cana, he probably drank some of that wine, yet Philip is incredulous as he asked Jesus, what exactly do you mean? We find in verse 7 that Philip answers Jesus with disbelieving wonder. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each to have a bite. And then another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Who? Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes. But how far will that go? And so the next question is, though you're ready for a miracle, are you calculating the cost of it? <laughs> See, that's the thing about miracles. Like, they don't really add up. <laughs> the community we find in the Gospel of John was faced with a complex set of social choices. If you remember, the church has not been established yet. Liturgically, we are in the historical season where Jesus is just now revealing that he's the Messiah. And so the fact that people are following him is strange. The circumstances that the folks that are sitting on that grassy hill that are following Jesus are hmm, challenging to say the least. See, some folks are asking them why don't why they don't just stay in the synagogue. I mean, you're already a member of a church. Like, why don't you just go there? Others are asking whether or not where they're going is officially recognized by the Roman Empire as a safe place to be. Others, you know... They're wondering what the consequences of going will be. Like they know why you're not going to the other temples and synagogues. And they already know that this is not sanctioned place of worship by the Roman Empire. And they're wondering, like, so if I show up, though, what will happen to me? For John, there was only one real choice. The way he tells the story in this gospel 
in very stark terms, it reveals that he has little patience for those who take what he perceives as the safe course. So those curious spectators, those that had followed Jesus to Galilee, those that were, you know, with Jesus wanting to be fed, they had taken a huge chance. Even while sitting in the crowd, doubting and speculating, even in the midst of their their mistrust, there was a bubbling faith that maybe Jesus as the Messiah the incarnate God, the word that had become flesh, that maybe that meant something that would change their life miraculously. For the gospel of John, the center of Jesus's story is the incarnation, that Jesus is with us, withness makes John an important resource for theological and Lenten reflections on embodiment. Because in John, salvation is found in and through the flesh. There is no transcendence. We've got to go through it. We can't skip the human part, the part that breaks our heart. We must be with Jesus. We must be with one another. The embodied presence of Jesus means something for the material nature of our lives. To sit with Jesus, to be still, to be present with Jesus is life-changing in John's gospel. And John's gospel invites us to believe that in tangible and practical ways. Not just by following some star in the sky. But in verse 10, we read, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Hold on, I'm hungry. Like the store is down there. Why am I sitting here? Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So here's the next question. If you believe in miracles, if you're ready for a miracle, here's the next question. Are you willing to walk it out? Because see, here's what Philip and Andrew did, and Jesus. Five loaves, two fishes. It doesn't add up. And we're still going to walk around and put it on their plates. We're not going to stand around waiting for more loaves and more fishes to pop up before we start distributing the food. We're just going to start. Are you willing to walk it out? Are you walking out your life, living your days and approaching your problems as if the presence of Jesus means something? Even if that presence is just sitting still on the grass, waiting for your loaf and your fish. Are you taking chances? Are you asking questions? 
Would you have still been in the synagogue sitting on the same mat, singing the same songs about what God had done for your people? Ignoring the invitation to follow the incarnate God out into the world, out into the green open space, out to sit amongst community in the grass. Would you have been sitting in the presence of Jesus? Or would you have been present among the crowd, waiting for revelation, waiting for a miracle? See, Jesus' response to the speculation and doubt that was even amongst the crowd as they were getting fed was to reveal his true nature to them, his light, his divinity even knowing it was a risk. It wasn't about proving, it was about revealing. Though there wasn't much trust, though the shadows were growing bigger, Jesus revealed his light as bright as it had ever been shown. Each miracle was bigger and bigger. Each revelation was bigger and bigger. Each sign was revealed to more people. And this was the biggest one yet. And though the speculation remained about Jesus's identity, the people believed the miracle they were witnessing. As was revealed with the fourth miracle, with this miracle, the nature of faith, with the third miracle, last week's miracle, the nature of faith is different than the nature of trust. We often, as people, confuse trust with faith. But the essence of trust is not the same as the essence of faith. Trust is, I understand what you're coming from. I understand from your consistent pattern that I can count on you. We don't understand faith. (laughs) And miracles usually go against the consistent pattern. That's why it's a miracle. It broke the rules. So John gets practical with us because when we don't understand stuff, it's like, make it plain. John doesn't ask us to have faith in some great mystery. How did that star come into the sky? How did that baby get into that young girl's belly? The Holy Spirit? What? No. John's gospel recounts for us revelations and invites us to believe. In some respects, believing replaces blind faith in John's gospel. The public ministry that begins with the wedding at Cana and will end with the raising of Lazarus, both stories unique to John's gospel, not in the other gospels, demonstrates the signs and works of Jesus's ministry and manifests symbolically the glory that comes when God reveals themselves to us. Signs that defy logical explanation, signs of people and objects acting in unexpected ways, big and small, water to wine, restoring health from far away with the publican's son, walking when they've never walked before with the paralytic. As simple and complex as, how are we going to feed all the people that took a chance on us? John's gospel bridges the gap between faith and doubt between assurance and curiosity with practical, real accounts of the divine. So I ask you again this week, are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for that kind of thing to happen in your life? 
Because since Epiphany, I've been asking that question, if y'all are really ready for a miracle. And the thing that we've learned from John, the revelation of the miracles through the ministry work of Jesus Christ, is that folks were ready. They were in need. They were frightened. They were hurting. They were desperate. They were hungry. They were indeed ready for a miracle. That wasn't the problem, though. What John's perspective on the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us see is that folks had trouble believing. In this story, we find the parallels between Moses and manna. And that the people of Israel, when they journeyed through the wilderness, now the wilderness of this world and the cultural and political times that Jesus found himself in, And yet Jesus was still gaining followers and there was still unbelief, even amongst those that were with him. When Jesus begins to feed the crowd, they are speculating about who he is, if he's a prophet, if he's a Messiah, if he's the king. One thing to note is that scripturally, these seven miracles of which this week were on the fourth are characterized as revelations of Jesus's public ministry. He'd already been with the disciples and yet Philip and Andrew still didn't know what could happen. People that didn't know if they could trust Jesus and what he was revealing to them, people that were revealing the truth that Jesus already knew, would later ask God to miraculously transform their own lives, skipping over Jesus, forgetting the miracles. What begins to take shape in this fourth story is that the bright light of Jesus, the bright light of Jesus will cast a big shadow. We talked about, like I said, that we confuse trust and faith. That faith, though it requires trust, is different. Because it asks us, even beyond our own understanding, to buy into what we see. What begins to take shape, what the people begin to see in this fourth miracle, are the shadows. See, the brighter a light is, the bigger the shadow it casts. Yet Jesus continues. Because we know that there are two more, three more miracles to come. Even as speculation grew and the shadows of doubt grew and the shadows of corruption, because this is when the whispers also started. And the murderous plots began to emerge. It seems that whether the followers of Jesus were ready for a miracle was the wrong question. We should be asking ourselves if we really believe in the miracle. Because see, our soul salvation and our community's connection to God through Christ doesn't hinge upon being ready. The paralytic man was obviously not ready and yet he was still healed. We've all experienced that too. We forgot to pray. We forgot to ask. We didn't even think about this thing happening. And yet still God showed up. And so scriptures require that to be saved, to live life abundantly, to experience the light of God, the power of the blood and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we must believe in miracles. 
We must believe that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, came to feed us when it doesn't add up. To reorganize our relationships and connections to structures that order our lives and to defy logic in in ways that compel us to action. It doesn't make sense with so much food in the world. It doesn't make sense with empty houses that there are houseless neighbors, that there is a reason for the mission of human impact. And that very thing that doesn't make sense should compel us to action. Should push us out of the temples and synagogues where we can ask questions and grow satisfied. So that we can sit in the fields waiting for fresh manifestation of Christ. So, do you believe in miracles? To what ridiculous hope are you committed to believing that others question your wisdom and your sanity because of it? What perception of yourself and others does the invitation to believe in Jesus as a miracle worker, even today, even now, must you release? In this season of stillness and preparation, will you follow Jesus into the dark? Will you sit and wait for him to reveal himself to you? We are quick because of how uncomfortable it is to know that we are alive and Christ is alive in us while simultaneously remembering we are but dust. So we are quick to jump to the moment Jesus dies for us, the moment of proof, the moment of fulfillment of the scripture. We all want Easter and we want it to be done. But before Jesus died for you, for me, Jesus revealed himself to us. Jesus made vulnerable his very life. That's love and peace, but. (laughs) Even knowing what it would cost him in love, Jesus revealed himself. In this Lenten season, maybe it isn't about shopping or sweets that you're being invited to release. What shadows Are you dancing with in the darkness of this season? As we walk towards the day where those who believed the most that Jesus was the Messiah extinguished the light of Christ in the earth. I'm wondering, can you believe in the power of the light within you? Even as the darkness approaches, do you believe in miracles? Even now.
For today's benediction, if we can bring the lights up so that folks can see what's going on on the tables. My Lenten reflection is coming from this season, an author named Cole Arthur Riley. And Cole tells a story about a mirror. And so some of you are sitting around mirrors and some of you aren't, and that is on purpose. If you are sitting around a mirror with a mirror in reach, I'd like you to grab it. And as you look at yourself in that mirror, I want you to think about how sometimes your reflection surprises you. For me, it's usually there's a chin hair that grew overnight that I'm like, where'd that come from? Or an eyebrow that's like, why, when that start growing that way? And let's not talk about the gray hairs, right? That just pop up. Our reflection is jarring to us. Sometimes we study it. And part of that is because we were never meant to see ourselves truly in mirrors. I would like for you, introverts, I am so sorry. I am an introvert. The mirror part was for you. It's now over. I would like for you to find someone, maybe the someone you're most comfortable with or maybe someone across the room to look at. Look at them, look at their face, look at their eyes, look at their eyebrows. Make eye contact, do not avert your eyes. This is important. Cole Arthur Riley writes this. I want you to continue looking at each other. It will be an inordinately uncomfortable amount of time. I was staring at my father in the mirror one day when it occurred to me he didn't, he didn't look like his reflection. I said, do you think that that is your face? My dad looked at me like I was setting up a joke. I wasn't. With the mirror reversing his image, it was clear that his eyes weren't in the right place. It looked like someone was trying to recreate him, but they couldn't line up his lips exactly right. Everything was thrown off just a hair. I said to my dad, that's not your face. It was the first time it occurred to me that we will never really see our own faces. 
We can see a mirror that's doing its best, but that is not your face. Just an image of it reversed and distorted. I remember thinking how much more handsome my father was in real life. I wanted to tell him, but couldn't find the words. So I grabbed him and I stared. We need other people to see our faces, to bear witness to their beauty and truth. God has made, made it so that I can never truly know myself apart from another person. I cannot trust myself to describe the curves of my nose because I have never seen them. I want someone to bear witness to my face, that we could behold the image of God in one another and believe, believe in it on one another's behalf. Audrey Lord said, without community, there is no liberation. There is no promised land. There is no milk and honey without a multitude. You think you can get there alone? And maybe by some rare chance you do, but what will it become of the promise when it's collapsed by loneliness? Who is going to drink all that milk and honey with you? Look down at the cool running stream. You can never see yourself in mirrors. We can only see ourselves in one another. So this week, I'm not going to ask you to come have coffee with me like I always do. I'm going to ask you to have coffee with one another. Even if your heart's broken and you don't know what to say, or the person across from you has a broken heart and you don't know what to say. Just look at them. Drink your coffee and witness the only instance we have of ever seeing ourselves truly, which is through each other. I love y'all, and I hope to see y'all staring weirdly in mocha sometime this week. Mm-hmm.